Amen, everybody. I just want to encourage you, times like that are important, where we see Sunday morning is not just people up here acting or doing, but that we actively see ourselves as a body of Christ and uh, sharing with one another, um, bearing one another's burdens, walking alongside of each other, and that's what it's, that's what it's really about, church. And in doing so, committing our way back to God and reminding ourselves that He is the one who's in control. He is the one who's over it all. And uh, no matter what you're going through right now, and I know every one of us is going through something, because that's just how life is. And it may be similar to someone else, it may be unique circumstance, but uh, we can all think of areas where we need to just let go in a sense, and say, God, I can no longer do this myself. I have to hand this over to you. And as we uh, start into really a new series of talks this week, um, it's appropriate, and uh, that was why the songs that were sung were selected to focus on who God is, uh, because that's really the question uh, we're going to be seeking to answer just today. And Uh, This series of talks is going to actually walk through um, our statement of faith as a church. And the reason for that is because uh, we have this statement of faith that we say, these are the things that we see in Scripture that we affirm, we believe these to be true. And it's at the foundation of everything else we do. And if we as a church corporately don't understand the depth of that, if we don't grasp these things well, then we're very prone to just kind of doing our own thing. And some might be over here and thinking one thing, and some are over here thinking another. And so I want to encourage you as we walk through this the next, uh, realistically, ten weeks uh, to think about that and to really ask yourself as we go through each one of these points, what do I believe about this? What do I believe? And uh, I have to admit that when I started this week, and uh, <laughs> read our first point of the statement of faith, my first thought is, what in the world did I do to myself? Because realistically, every one of these points uh, in our statement of faith, I could probably preach to you 20 sermons uh, with all the detail it covers, every piece of it biblical in nature, every piece of it foundational and fundamental to everything else, um, but we're going to seek, with God's help, to, to summarize these and to understand the importance of them. And uh, today, specifically, uh, we're focusing on our first point, which is about God himself and who God is and who we believe God is. And uh, when I thought of tackling this first point, uh, there was a, a hymn that actually came to mind and uh, the hymn, The Love of God. How many of you know that hymn? Okay. And the third verse of that, I want to read it to you. Because I think it perfectly captures my feelings about how in the world I'm going to talk about this to you for a mere uh, 30 to 40 minutes and summarize it. It says this, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. 
nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And that in and of itself <laughs> uh, summarizes my feelings about who God is. And I, I believe firmly that there's going to be aspects of who God is that we just don't grasp until we stand before him in eternity. And rest assured, well, or unassured, but I can guarantee you every one of us is going to stand before God someday. The question is in what capacity we will stand before him. And that's important for us to consider. So I want to pray for us and then uh, we're going to jump into this and we're going to be kind of from place to place. We're going to start in Acts and I'll share with you where in a minute and uh, read several other passages of scripture to enforce uh, and reaffirm what we believe about who God is. But let's, let's commit this to God, all right? Father, we are humbled by your mercy and your grace. And Lord, I praise you that you are a God of compassion, that you are a God who hears, that you are a God who we can have confidence in and assurance. And so, Father, this morning I pray that as we step into uh, this next series of talks, that it would be one that's beneficial, but that it's reassuring or challenging to us in new ways. Lord, ultimately, that you would be glorified above all else, as we open your word and seek to understand what you have called us to as your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So point one of our statement of faith, I'm going to put this up there first. And uh, while I'm putting this up there, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17. And uh, as I said before, we're going to jump around a little bit today. And uh, the reason for that is because there's so much that's encompassed in this uh, first point of our statement of faith that I want to uh, give you uh, the understanding of the biblical foundation, the biblical basis for where this is determined. I don't want any of this to be something that's man-made. I want this to be something that is directly of God. And I would challenge you that as we walk through this, if there is any portion of this that you step back and you go, I don't know where this is at biblically, that you challenge me on it, okay? Pull me aside, ask me, where, where is this at? How, how are we sure of this? Because if there's anything that we cannot back up with God's word, then it certainly shouldn't be something that we say we stand on, Okay? So Acts, <clears throat> Acts chapter 17, but I want to read this statement of faith to you. It's going to be up here, all right? So this is what the first point of the statement of faith says. It says, we believe <clears throat> in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equal, equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. It's a powerful statement. And as I was thinking about how uh, we can find biblical basis for even a portion of this, Acts 17, and specifically starting in verse 22, I want to read this to you. And this is, this is an instance where a Paul who used to be Saul 
And if you want the story on this man's conversion, go to Acts chapter 9 and read it sometime. But uh, Paul is here, and he's speaking to a group of people. And it says, so Paul's standing in the midst, this is verse 22, in the midst of Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance, given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, if you ever have someone come to you and ask, who is this God that you profess faith in? And you wonder where to go. Take them to Acts 17. This is a great summary that Paul goes through and he highlights to these people who've been worshiping this unknown God that no doubt they have seen move in ways that none of their other man-made gods have moved. And this continues as Paul expresses the depth of who this God really is. From creator to sovereign, to being one God that is not made by the imagination or thought process of man and who will judge the world in righteousness through Christ. Now, for our purposes today, this is our main idea. Okay? So if you walk away with nothing else today, this is what I want you to wrestle with and meditate on and it's that everything we believe as christians is built upon a foundation of who god is now if you really wanted to question this you would ask the question is everything that i believe built upon a foundation of who god is is everything that I profess to be true built on a foundation of who God is? Or is it resting on a separate foundation of something else? Now, the reality of this, and what I'm going to give you four specific points here today to wrestle with that we see throughout Scripture. But what I would challenge you with, many times we flip this a little bit. And we would say that, well, my belief system is rooted in the Bible. 
is rooted in what the Bible says. Well, if we look at what the Bible says, it tells us that the Bible is none other than what? Shout it out. What is it? The word of the word of God. Okay, so if I deduct and we're going to talk about the Bible next week, that's our second state point of uh, our second point, our statement of faith. If I believe that the Bible is the word of God, then by nature, the Bible itself is rooted in a foundation of who God is. And if we trace that back, and we're going to talk about that today, if we trace that back, then we grasp an understanding that the God that we have revealed to us in the Bible is the very God on which we should build everything else, which means everything else should be built on a foundation of who God is. Okay? This is really important, church. And I, I hate to say this, but I have been in places where people, just like you and me, have worshipped the Bible more than they worshipped the God who authored the Bible. That cannot be. Because it limits us simply to what is penned in this book. And what I mean by that is even John himself, when talking about Jesus, said, If everything had been written, there's no book in the world that could contain the amount of pages that it would take. That doesn't mean God hasn't revealed enough. Okay? God has revealed exactly what He intended to reveal to us in order for us to glorify and worship Him. But rest assured that there is much that we do not understand and will not understand because we are not God. And so coming back to this, I, this concept, everything we believe is built upon a foundation of who God is. The first reality I want us to wrestle with is the foundation of God as one. Everyone say one. Now, this is really interesting. How many of you are familiar with the term polytheism? Anyone familiar with that? Okay, a few of you. So polytheism is the belief that there are multiple gods. And there are many there are many faiths in our society, in our world today, that believe in many gods. Many faiths historically have believed in that. And that term to describe that is polytheism. Now, just a little trivia here, and I'm going I'm to show you. The first group of people that I thought of when it came to polytheism was the Egyptians. And we see the Egyptians in the Old Testament. Israel was in bondage to Egypt, we see that in Exodus. Exodus is named Exodus because they exited Egypt. All right, that's the story. They were in captivity. They exited Egypt. And Egypt was profound in their belief of multiple gods. Polytheism. Okay, They, they are rooted into this. How many gods do you think the Egyptian people worshipped? Anyone got a guess? Someone said ten. Any other guesses? 20? 100? Okay. The answer is actually over 2,000. Over 2,000. Now, I'm going to one-up you. Hinduism. Current. Today. How many gods do you think Hindus worship or believe in? Take a guess. I heard 1 million, I heard 4,000. What do you think? 
you actually overshot it. It's not a hundred million, but it's around 33 million. Now, the reason they give for believing in 33 million gods is they say, well, in each city, you have one god over that city and then you have delegated responsibilities to all these other gods. It just, that's just for that city. And so then in every city elsewhere, you have a god who's over that city and then multiple other delegated responsibilities. So you see how this adds up really quickly. Now, coming back to our belief that the, the foundation, that the foundation of who God is, the God of the Bible, the God we affirm is one, everyone say one, is crucial is because when you don't know where to turn, you turn to how many gods? One. Now, where do we see this in scripture? Deuteronomy chapter six, And you can jot these down or you can turn to them. It's completely up to you. I'm going to read them for you as we uh, pay attention to our time today and walk through this. Deuteronomy 6, and this is when the commands of script of uh, the Old Testament are given. The law is being talked about. God's commands specifically to Israel at this point. And Deuteronomy 6, <clears throat> verse 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... One, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Get this, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you ever want to challenge it, what role the word of God, the commands of scripture should play in our life, come to Deuteronomy 6. But the specific exhortation, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is identified all the way back here. Now, another place where this is emphasized is in Ephesians chapter 4, and we walked through the book of Ephesians earlier in the year. Ephesians chapter 4. And here Paul is talking to a group of believers, a church in Ephesus at this time. And he's in prison as he's writing this. And in Ephesians 4 verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is, I'm going to hold up my finger, you're going to say it, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now you get the gist of that. His emphasis there is that God is one. Okay? This is really, really important here. Now the third place I want to take you is in John chapter 17. Because sometimes I will have people say to me, Well, these are all writers that are writing this. 
How can we be assured that this is true, that this is actually uh, something that I can rely on? And in John chapter 17, I take people here because this is the words of Jesus himself. Jesus himself speaks this, and with a lot of people, there is some more credibility to what Jesus has said than some of these others that they just don't know who they are. That's not diminishing what I believe that all scripture is breathed out by God. But nonetheless, when you are working with someone who may not be aware of that or may struggle with that, turn to the words of Jesus here. And in John 17, Jesus is praying. He's talking specifically with God the Father. And in verse 10, Jesus says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be, what is it? One, even as we are one. Now jump down to verse 20. And Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be, what is it? One, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be, what is it? One, even as we are, what is it? One, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's a profound prayer from the one who was just after this taken and tried and crucified for the sins of mankind. But why does this oneness of God matter? Church, if God is one, then he is the only true God. This means that there's nothing that can compare to his role in relation to the world as we know it. Nothing is higher, nothing is more worthy, nothing is more perfect, nothing is more just, nothing is more loving than God himself. Anything that threatens that has become an idol in our lives. It's become something that has taken the place of the one God. If God is one, then he in and of himself is complete. Think about that for a minute. He needs no other being to complete who he already is. He is in and of himself, holy, perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign. He is, as he told Moses, I am. I am. How how do you describe how, how Moses is asking, who do I tell them has sent me to you? And God simply responds, I am has sent you. He just is. He's complete in and of himself. Entirely. Church, if we don't understand the foundation of God as one, as the only one, then we have already set a course for everything else to be misunderstood. Because then what, what determines what a God is? How can we have confidence in going to the God we proclaim in that sense? Okay? All right. Second thing, the foundation of God in creation. Identify that. 
Not only the foundation of God is one, the foundation of God in creation. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some of you may understand the term pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that the world is God. Rather than the creator is God. In Genesis 1 verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and it was what? It was good. By believing in one God, the foundation of creation becomes one where God breathed life into every part of it. That creation itself does not have the power to give life in the same way that God has formed it. Even mankind is not equal to God in glory or power. Who we believe God to be carries down into the order and pattern of creation, recognizing that these realities could not have simply happened. It brings about an understanding of the cause. While we should not worship creation, understand church, we should respect it. Understanding that creation too groans For redemption and the pains of childbirth, just like you and I, awaiting to be brought out of this curse. The foundation of God in creation. Thirdly, the foundation of God in love. Turn with me quickly to 1 John chapter 4, where we see this emphasized. And might I just add that as you're turning there, this is one of the most commonly misinterpreted and misviewed portions of who God is. Because we like to define what love is out of our own feeling of emotion rather than on a person individually who in and of himself embodies the entirety of that. First John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, why? God is love. Everyone say that again. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Church, in the depth of who we are, We believe that we have a comprehension of what love is. And yet, by very definition, God himself is love. In other words, even our pure understanding of what love is cannot accurately be defined apart from who God is. Everything we believe is built upon a foundation of who God is. For this reason, apart from an understanding of who God is, can we really begin to understand what love is? We can quote passages like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. But do we really grasp what love is? We could potentially sit on this point of the statement of faith for the rest of this series and not even come close to exhausting it. 
But I truly desire that we grasp an understanding of how this triune one God should help us in establishing our concept of love. And I want to read this quote to you as we seek to understand one of the most talked about and difficult to explain concepts in scripture, the Trinity. How many of you guys would say, I, I am confused by how to describe the Trinity? How many of you would say that? Hey, if you are, you're in great company because it's completely outside of our human comprehension to understand this. How can you believe in a God who is one and yet three in distinct nature? And understand this. This is from a book called Evangelical Convictions. And I, I loved this statement. It says, there is one God, but this one God has never been alone. God was love within himself before he ever created the, a world to love. For within himself, the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and the Holy Spirit himself was caught up in this unity of love. God existed eternally in this unity of love, loving himself before he ever loved any of us. Think about that. I read that quote today. I walked out of my office and looked at my staff and just went, Mind blown. And so I would challenge you not to get stuck on little things like this, but to seek to understand this is what God has revealed to us about himself. And even if I don't fully grasp the entirety of it, I can see how he has laid the foundation for everything I need to be affirmed that he is God. He and he alone is God. And the foundation of everything else can be built out of that. If I build the foundation of my belief on who God has revealed himself to be, rather than who man has told me he is, I build it on, as the psalmist says, a rock and a fortress. Last point this morning, church. The foundation of God in redemption. Here's what I want you to understand. The very gospel we proclaim is rooted in God himself. The very good news, everyone say good news, that we believe is the only way to salvation, is rooted in the creator. This was not an afterthought, church. The God, the same God that created everything around us, that created you and I and the distinct personalities we see. That same God desires that we would be redeemed. That we would not die in our sin. So what changes, church? What changes if everything begins with God? And this is really where our application sits in. What changes... The definition of life changes, not what man says, rather what the Bible says, what God says specifically. The definition of salvation changes, not man's way, but God's way. The definition of love changes, defined by God himself. My theology should change, Rather than building everything in order to paint a picture of God, everything is built upon who God has already revealed himself to be. My level of obedience changes. 
as I understand the foundation of God in every part of my life, it should compel me to say, God, I want to serve you. Because you are the only true God, the only one I can follow after. And who we are as a church should change when we fully grasp that nothing we do is for our own benefit, but rather everything we do is done out of a recognition of the only one who can give life. The only one who can administer complete justice. The only one who can embody love as it's intended to be. The only one who has the power to change any circumstance. One God. Now as we close today, I want us to read a psalm together. And it's going to be up on the screen. And so I'd ask you to stand with me. And this is Psalm 145. And when we think about how I'm going to apply this, I couldn't think of any better way to end our time together than to read this corporately as a church. And as we read this, I want you to think about the depth of application here within this text. Think about the words that it speaks and what it says. And then ask yourself, how do I, how do I live this out? What does it look like? So let's read this together. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim our great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. So that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all His promises, and loving toward all He has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall, and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. 
He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Father, may this be the cry of our hearts as we recognize and seek to even comprehend all that you are and yet you desire to have relationship with us, Lord. We praise you for that. May we exalt you in Jesus' name.